Good morning, Riverside Community Church. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Stephen. I serve as one of the leaders here, and it's a great privilege for me to serve here in a full-time capacity. I also have the privilege of regularly teaching God's Word, and that's what we're going to be doing this morning. So if you have your Bibles here, turn with me to 1 Peter. It's the book or the letter of 1 Peter. So turn on your Bibles, uh, go search through the contents, or just flick through the pages. If you hit Revelation, you've gone too far, go back a number of pages, you'll find 1 and 2 Peter, and we're going to start from verse 1, and over the course of the next nine weeks, we are going to be sticking to this book, so a nine-week series in the book of 1 Peter. Now, um, maybe if you've been with us for a number of years, you'll know that from time to time, we like to take a book of the Bible and just dig our teeth into the book of the Bible. But if that's unfamiliar to you, maybe you're asking the question, why do you do that? Why do we maybe take a book of the Bible and really come to grips with this as opposed to talk about maybe more topical things that are maybe easier to talk about? And there's a number of reasons. The first reason is that we understand the Bible to be God's word. To be God's word. Charles Spurgeon, the famous English preacher, he said, you know, it's easy. When it comes to God's word, we don't have to defend it. We, it's like a lion. We just let it out of its cage and it does its thing. So if this is God's word, then my responsibility is to take God's word and make it plain to us. And it will always outperform my words every single time. So that's one of the reasons, um, and that God's Word will do the heavy lifting. We also understand that as God's Word, uh, God's Word gives us faith. Last week we heard about this. We heard that faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from listening to your preacher. No, no, hearing comes from the words of Christ. Alright, so if you want to grow in faith, and I hope that you do, we're going to become acquainted with the words of Christ, and therefore we're going to spend some good time on God's Word. And number three, we heard last week that my dad preached just about fruitfulness, and he said fruitfulness comes from God's Word. Why? Because uh, we've got a sower, who's God, who is unchanging. We've got the seed, God's Word, which is unchanging. And then we've got our hearts. And when we have receptive hearts, God's word lands in a good place and produces fruit in our lives. So if you want faith, and if you want fruit in your lives, then we're going to acquaint ourselves with God's word. So the first reason why we do this is because we understand this to be God's word. Secondly, we do this because it means I don't just get to preach on the stuff I like or the stuff I think you like, which is easier for all of us. Because when we come to a book like 1 Peter, I'm going to be going through it. And if in my preparation I see next week, oh, that's not easy to preach on. And if I skip it, you will know all about it. All right, so it holds me accountable, but it also matures you as we become more acquainted with God's Word. And then going through a book like this also provides context. Now, if you're on social media, you'll know what a meme is. If you're not on social media, a meme is basically like a little cute picture with some sort of statement, usually intended to make you laugh. We also get Christian memes, and we also get kind of Christian version of memes. There's like a nice little picture, sunset clouds usually, and a Christian verse. And I think many of us are developing a Christian meme faith. Meaning we've got a handful of Christian verses that we know and that's about all we know and we quote that for everything. It's kind of like watching, uh, going into a movie midway through, watching for five minutes and walking out feeling like you know exactly what the movie is all about. Uh, that's what I feel like with Star Wars because that's all I can stay awake for. Sorry, Star Wars fans. Um, 
But going through a book gives us context, helps us understand when we've got these verses, what's really going on here. And I believe we are enriched by doing that. So those are some reasons why we go through a book from time to time. Now the question is, well, why one Peter? Well, one of the reasons I think is uh, one of the disciples or the apostles that I think many of us can identify with is the apostle Peter for a number of reasons. Uh, uh, Peter was kind of hot-headed. He was very quick to speak, very slow to think. Uh, He had what we call foot-in-mouth disease. Uh, Many of us have foot-in-mouth disease, which is why we identify with him. He was also very passionate. Jesus, I'll go with you. Even if I die, yet a few hours later, he's denying him. So Peter's the guy of ups, the guy of downs, the guy of passions. And yet God used Peter greatly in the kingdom of God. And for that reason, we identify with the person of Peter. Now, he's writing this book much later into his life. Um, but uh, the main reason why we want to spend some time working through the book of 1 Peter is because Peter is writing. People didn't just sit down and go, I'm going to write the Bible. Uh, there was an actual context. There were questions. There were churches that were being addressed with real issues being addressed. And Peter was writing into a context. Now, very often for many of us, I don't want to overgeneralize, but if you're kind of of the older generation and if you refer to the good old days, usually we refer to this time in our history and uh, Europe had its own version of this, the States had its own version of this, where we kind of had what theologians call Christendom. Kind of this weird intersection between Christian religion and culture and politics. So many of us grew up with an understanding that we live in a Christian nation. Uh, We learned the Ten Commandments in school. We uh, read out the Lord's Prayer in school, maybe even had little talks in most schools. That was the norm, not the exception. Most people knew Moses. Most people knew the Ten Commandments. Most people knew the Bible. They had Bibles. And most people went to church. I mean, shops and sports were closed on a Sunday because we're a Christian nation. Now, while in many ways that kind of makes life a bit easier, on the other hand, one of the unintended outcomes of that is that there were a lot of people, what we would call cultural Christians, meaning people who just go along with the Christian flow just because that's what culture does. So I kind of go to church, I kind of do Christian things, I kind of try and live a good life, but there's no radical transformation of my heart as Christ changes me and leads me and he becomes my king. I just kind of go with the flow because that's what everyone else is doing. Now, this might be news to some of you, but that is no longer the case. We no longer live in a Christian nation. Europe is no longer a Christian continent. America is no longer a Christian nation. All right? Uh, we live in an increasingly non-Christian culture where more and more people are worshipping other religions and more and more people are abandoning religion completely. They are choosing to become agnostic, meaning I don't really know about God, so I'm going to kind of ignore that. Um, Or some people might have very strong reasons why they're agnostic. And others might just go right down the atheistic path saying, I believe there's no such thing as a God. And increasingly in the universities, increasingly in the cities, increasingly in these generations, more and more people are leaving Christianity. So we are living in a non-Christian culture. And and what's starting to happen is not even a non-Christian sentiment in a culture, but an anti-Christian sentiment in our culture. Maybe you've picked that up. 
Maybe you've picked up an anti-Christian sentiment towards Christian morality. Maybe you've picked up an anti-Christian sentiment towards the church or our belief and faith in Christ. Now, uh, while we don't necessarily experience this in our country, by and large anyway, um, what the stats seem to show us is that more people globally have been killed for their faith in Christ in the 20th century than in all the 19th centuries before that. Which means there are people today who will lose their lives because they claim Jesus Christ as Lord. Now that's maybe not something you and I will face tomorrow, but what we may face is ridicule. What you may face is misunderstanding. What you may face is generalization. What you may face is some sort of intellectual antagonism towards our faith in Jesus Christ. And that is why we are going to the book of 1 Peter. Because this is exactly the context into which Peter was writing. He's writing to a bunch of believers, not in one church, but a bunch of churches scattered around what is now known as modern-day Turkey. Uh, This was part of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire at this stage was very pagan, meaning that they worshipped the pagan gods, the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods. They had Caesar worship. Now these guys abandon those gods. They come to faith in Christ in this non-Christian culture. And by the time Peter is writing to these people, there was not only a non-Christian culture, but an anti-Christian culture. In fact, Nero was the emperor at the time of this writing and Nero launched a number of very strategic blows of persecution against the Christian church. Now this might freak some of you out, but some of the things Nero used to do, he would take Christians, dip them in tar, impale them and set them alight at his feasts for entertainment. He would take Christians and he would wrap them in wild animal skins and set them free amongst other wild animals again for entertainment. Christians were often used as entertainment in the gladiatorial games. So Peter's writing into this very non-Christian, anti-Christian culture and he's trying to encourage their faith. And he's trying to say, guys, what does it mean to follow Christ in this space? And I believe every single one of us needs, whether you're, you're probably not asking that question, but I encourage you to start asking that question. What does it mean to be a Christian in a culture that is non-Christian and sometimes even increasingly anti-Christian? So for that reason, I think we are going to find the book of 1 Peter extremely challenging. He's going to be addressing suffering quite a lot because that is what these people are going through. And I know many of you, maybe while not suffering for your faith per se, are going through tough times and are suffering. So Peter's going to be speaking to us about that, but also challenging us. He's also going to be challenging us about our holiness. How do we live out this reality in this non-Christian culture? He's going to be challenging us about authority. He's going to be challenging us about marriage. And he's also going to be strongly encouraging us to live courageous lives. So I want to invite you into this journey as we go through this book. It's going to be a courageous step for you. It's probably not going to be very comfortable, but I think it's so relevant. And I think every single one of us can start to live extremely, uh, increasingly bold and courageous lives as a result of God's Word transforming us using a book like 1 Peter. So having said all of that, let's start reading 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to read from verses 1 to 2. For now, Peter, identifying himself as the writer and apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, is writing to the, uh, God's chosen people, God's elect, believers scattered around, uh, strangers in the world, 
scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. We have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, just to help us bridge our understanding with their understanding, God's writing to these believers and He calls them here in verse 1, strangers. Some of your translations may have the word exile. Some of your translations may even have the word alien, which has nothing to do with exiles. Okay, the exiles, not exiles. Um, some of you have the word sojourner, a temporary resident. This is one of the major themes of 1 Peter, writing to these persecuted Christians. He's saying, guys, this is not your home. And this is something we need to hear and be reminded of. This is not our home. We are strangers in this world. We are citizens of heaven passing through this world. Hence the title of the series is We Are Exiles. The series is called Exiles. Now, uh, let's read on. We're going to read all the way through to the end of verse 12 from verse 3. Uh, so kind of, just kind of put our thinking caps on, concentrate. There's so much rich stuff here. Um, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope. And through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that now have been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. That's quite a mindful, that's quite a mouthful, even more so in Greek. Apparently in Greek, these 10 verses are one long Greek sentence. As Paul just kind of gets into this doxology, meaning just this flurry of words that are just bringing glory to God for all of these things. I know some of you think my sermons are like one long half an hour sentence. Um, but uh, Paul, uh, a great intellectual, he puts together these thoughts so well and so coherently. But I, I want us to think about this. He's writing into this context of incredible suffering and persecution. And I want you to notice the first thing he highlights the first thing he says, now before we just go back to these verses, just think for a second, if you had the pen, what would be the first thing you said? Writing to Christians who are literally losing their lives, what would you say? I think many of us might start off with a lot of sympathy. Guys, I, man, I'm so sorry to hear about what's going on in your neighborhood, in your churches. Maybe you start off with some empathy. You know what, I've also been through this, guys. I know exactly what you're going through. You know, the struggle, the struggle is real. 
maybe some of us will fall into some sort of platitudes. You know what? Everything's going to be okay. You know, my kids' legs are being torn off by a lion, but don't worry. You know, everything's going to be okay. I don't know where you would start, but where Peter starts is very interesting. He starts off, and that's what this morning's message is about. He starts off by refocusing their attention because I'm sure their attention was on the persecution and the sufferings they were going through, their concerns and worries, which are so real and relevant. And he says, I'm going to refocus your attention onto the value of your salvation and the value of your faith and your hope. And that's where he starts and he takes this one long sentence, 10 verses, just, I mean, I could literally preach for weeks just on these verses and I promise you I won't. But this is what I choose to open up with to provide hope for you and perseverance so that you can stay faithful through these times. So first of all, he refocuses their attention onto the value of their salvation. Now, I wonder what you value. And by the way, how, how do you know what you value? Well, you just see where your money goes. You see where your time goes. You see where your efforts and your passions go. You see where your mind goes and you'll find what you truly value. Many of us, if we do that little you know, audit in our own minds and lives, we realize, okay, what I really value is maybe family. What I really value is friends. Maybe what I really value is life experiences, maybe holidays, maybe cars and things, maybe hobbies. Um, I'm not entirely sure. And none of those things are wrong. They're all good things given us from God to enjoy. But if we had to say, but do we really value our salvation? Now, I want you to spend a few seconds thinking about your salvation. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're not, so glad that you're here uh, and, and just kind of, you know, uh, being with us and, and we're always praying for you. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, just think about your salvation. For many of us, what comes to mind is that time that we stuck our hand up in a youth camp or came forward and got prayed for by somebody. Maybe you think of someone in school or someone in the workplace or someone in your family who introduced you to Christ and there was that moment that it became real to you. But I wonder if now 10 months, 10 years, 50 years later, do you value your salvation? Maybe you think of a time that you really did. Usually soon after we encountered Christ, the reality of his salvation for the first time. You couldn't keep quiet about it. You just couldn't shut up. You're just kind of speaking about it all the time and in worship you were enraptured with who he was and the salvation you've received, the grace you've been given, the mercy you've been showed by him. Uh, But since then, a couple of other things have taken the place of your joys. You know, sometimes those things are not always other things. Sometimes it's even Christian things. Sometimes what really motivates us, what really gets us here, what really wakes us up in the morning is not Jesus and the value of our salvation, but what flows out of that is ministry. Sometimes what gets us up here is, is, well, I I just love preaching. Or what gets us up here is, well, uh, I just love children. I love serving children. Maybe I love mission. Maybe I love social justice. And again, those are wonderful things to immerse our lives into and give ourselves to. But if we say, yeah, but if I think about my salvation, I love those things. I love working for God, but I don't know if I love God. This is why Paul is trying to motivate us. And he just, just briefly, just to talk about the salvation that Paul is getting us to refocus on. In verse three, he says, this is a salvation to resurrection. 
resurrection. See, becoming a Christian doesn't just mean you've got something else to do on a Sunday morning. It doesn't just mean that you walk around this world with a new bumper sticker on your car or a new t-shirt. Something actually happens. The main thing that happened was that God came in the flesh. Emmanuel that we sang about, he came and he lived the perfect life and he died the death we could not live. And then he was raised from the dead, defeating the enemies we could not defeat. Sin, death, hell and Satan. And he rose, resurrected, never to die again. And he still lives. Well, one of the terms for us as Christians in the Bible are those who are in Christ. And because Christ is a resurrected one, when we are in Christ, which is another way of talking about our salvation, when we are in Christ, it is a salvation to resurrection, which means those who are in Christ will never taste death. And though we die in this world, we will go to something far greater. Our death is not the end of the book. The death is our end of chapter one. And we've got this incredible, glorious future waiting for us. A salvation to resurrection. But then there's also a salvation in verse 4 to inheritance. Uh, This is not often spoken about. Inheritance. One of the ways, again, the Bible talks about us is that when we can become followers of Jesus Christ, we are actually transformed. One of the things that has changed is that we become the children of God. You become the sons and daughters of God. Now, who receives the inheritance of the Father? The sons and daughters of the Father. Now, just just press pause on that thought because we know that the true Son of God is Jesus Christ. And if anyone was to receive an inheritance, it is Him. And you would be 100% right. But here's one of the, it's almost sacrilegious. Here's one of the phrases that is given to you and me if we're followers of Jesus Christ is this term. We are co-heirs with Jesus. Meaning he is the heir, we become children of God adopted into his family and we become co-heirs and therefore the inheritance that Jesus won, it's not the one we won, he won it by living the perfect life again, dying the death we could not die, defeating the enemies we could not defeat and becoming glorified to the Father in heaven. He receives the inheritance. When you and I become children of God, we become co-heirs with Jesus. And this inheritance these scriptures talk about will never perish, never spoil, and never fade because they kept in heaven for us. It's like the ultimate Swiss bank account. As opposed to the latest craze these days, um, for those of you who kind of read up on these things, is Bitcoin. All right, so everyone's investing in Bitcoin and everyone's, you know, believes that they'll become a millionaire by investing in Bitcoin. And if you don't invest in Bitcoin, then you're stupid because you need to invest in Bitcoin. And uh, the, the world will turn around if everyone invests in Bitcoin. And I hope, you, hope uh, you're probably thinking I need to stop saying Bitcoin. But here's the thing. Uh, okay, I'm not going to say anything about Bitcoin. I'm not a financial advisor. Let's take another angle. Uh, Hugh here had shares in Steinhoff. Okay, no, no, don't raise your hands. Because uh, I know that's a sore point for you guys. But the point is this. Whether it's Bitcoin, Microsoft, Steinhoff, the things of this world will perish. The things of this world will spoil and fade. The things of this world are not kept in heaven for you for an eternal future. The things of this world are kept by sinful people, often manipulative sinful people, and therefore we have no true hope in this world. Which is why Peter's saying, guys, your real inheritance as co-heirs of Jesus Christ, it'll never spoil. It'll never fade. It'll never perish. 
It'll be there and it's going to be far more glorious than Bitcoin shares, far more glorious than any inheritance or trust fund that you may have. Because even while the things of this world may not perish in your lifetime, you will, and then your kids and grandkids uh, will be fighting over your stuff because you can't take it with you. And, and Paul's saying, guys, just focus on this. I, I know you're suffering. I know you're going through, but just focus on your salvation to resurrection and focus on your salvation to an inheritance. So he focuses their attention onto their salvation, the value of their salvation. Number two, he says, refocus your attention onto the value of your faith. The value of your faith. Now again, just take stock. On a scale of one to 10, how much do you value your faith? Now the Christian answer is 10 out of 10. No, 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 okay, let's just evaluate, you know, what stirs your heart. Where do your resources go? Where, do, where does your time go? Where does your heart go? So, so out of one to 10, how do you value your faith? Because one of the things that Peter's saying is happening to this church and to us is, guys, when you encounter suffering, when you encounter difficulties, one of the things that's gonna happen is your faith is gonna be proven genuine. Verse seven. Proven genuine. See, it's very easy to be in a so-called Christianese culture. Christendom. So-called Christian country. It's very easy to be a Christian where nobody's going to look at you funny. No one's going to beat you up for being a Christian. It's very easy to be a Christian here on a Sunday morning. Praise Jesus, hallelujah. All right? It's not so easy when you go home to a family or a workplace where people are hostile towards you because you're a Christian. It's not so easy when things go wrong. And, and, and Peter's saying one of the things that happen to you when things go wrong is we're gonna discover is your faith genuine or not. Now, I don't wanna play judge and jury here, but I do wanna put out this reality. Some of you sitting here, and I have no clue, but some of you sitting here are cultural Christians. Just do churchy things. You do christian things. And the first difficult thing to come your way, you abandon Christianity like a rotten corpse because it's no longer working for you. See, I used to be a geologist before I came into full-time ministry. And uh, contrary to popular belief in these mines, you don't go down a mine and just find these huge nuggets of gold and bring them up into the surface. And while that does happen from time to time, the average gold that is down there that is coming out of the ground is at a grain size smaller than the eye can see. So you've got to take these rocks, blow them up, and then make them into smaller rocks and smaller rocks and smaller rocks. And through a process of physical and metallurgical processes, uh, bring these rocks down to a grain size that is the same size as the size of the, of the gold. And then start separating the gold from the waste or the rock. Now you've got a, a lot of gold with a lot of impurities. So that gold goes into a furnace. And that furnace burns away all the impurities until you're left with pure gold. Beautiful Rich, pure gold. Now, I actually didn't work in a gold mine. I worked in a platinum mine. And one of the minerals that we encountered, what is a mineral called pyrite, you probably know it as fool's gold. I don't know if you've ever seen fool's gold. If you don't know what to look for, especially if it's in a bit of a rock and the crystals are coming out, it looks like gold. And to the untrained eye, it looks like the real thing. But do you want to know what happens to fool's gold in the furnace? It gets burnt up because it's not real. 
And, and I, I say this with, with, with so much love, but uh, wanting to just provide it, moments of truth. For some of us, our faith is like that. It looks like the real thing. For, for, for the untrained eye, and maybe even for your own eye, it looks like the real thing. And we're doing these things, but the first suffering comes along and the first bit of difficulty comes along and the first bit of opposition comes along and our faith is consumed by these fiery trials. On the other hand, for those with genuine faith, yes, those trials come. Yes, those fiery trials come. No, they are not fun to endure. They are difficult. But what happens is the impurities in our heart, the impurities in our character are burnt away and what comes out is a purer faith. Which is often why in persecuted countries it's much harder to become a Christian. They don't just let anybody in. Because they're saying, guys, do you know what's going to happen to you if you join this church, if you become a Christian? So guys, let's just up the bar. Let's just like raise the standards of what it means to be a Christian so that if you have a genuine faith, you will survive and you'll persevere. But then you'll have this beautiful, powerful faith. And Paul says, guys, and this faith is of way more value than gold. Way more value than gold. Now, on one hand, he's just trying to refocus their attention. He's trying to give them some thoughts to think about. But he's also saying, guys, this is not just an idea. This is not just a philosophy. This is real stuff. This is a real resurrection life you've been born into. This is a real inheritance you will receive and enjoy forever. This is real faith which will allow you to persevere with joy everything you go through. But he says something else is going on. By refocusing your attention off the suffering, off the things of this world, as painful as they are, onto our salvation and onto the value of our faith. There are these outcomes. So just to lead us there, I'm going to read part of verse 3, part of verse 6, and part of verse 8. Verse 3. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope. A living hope. Isn't that what people really want? They want to live life with a real and a living hope. Hope. Verse six. In this, meaning some of what's going on, but also what's happening to your faith, in this you greatly rejoice. And verse eight. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. I believe hope, joy, and love is what the human heart truly desires. And I believe at many stages in our lives, we discover that the things of this world do not give us a living hope, living joy and a love that endures. And what Peter's trying to encourage in us, when we focus our attention on the things that are beyond this world, our salvation, our faith, what God's doing in us. An outcome of that is this hope and this joy and this love. So I'm going to conclude with a bit of a story just to try and illustrate this. 
Viktor Frankl, some of you may have heard, him, uh, heard about him, he was an Austrian Jewish psychoanalyst who was in the prison of war camps in World War II. He was in Auschwitz. And uh, being a psychoanalyst, he was you know, quite a sharp observer of humanity. And he was observing just what people were going through in these times of difficult stress and strain and difficulty. And, and he noticed that people respond to this, uh, this hostility in a number of ways. He said there were a group of people who responded by becoming equally brutal, equally cruel. That is the only way they could respond. Then he said there was a second group of people and in light of this difficulty, they would just reach a point where they would just give up hope. The lights would just go out and no amount of beating, no amount of threatening would get them to get out of their beds and it would literally, once they had, literally the light had gone off, they'd given up hope, it would be hours or days before they just died. Then he said there were a third group of people. Now he's a Jew, he's not a Christian, but just this is what he observed. Third group of people that um, they would kind of just remind themselves of what they had back home. So they'd remind themselves of their home or remind themselves of their family or remind themselves of their job. But he says a very interesting thing happened. Many of them went back only to discover the thing that they hoped for was no longer there. And he said most of those people in category three gave up hope became depressed and gave up their zeal for life. But then he said there was a fourth group of people. And these people didn't place their hope in something in this world. These people placed their hope in something that is not in this world. And these were the people who were able to endure Auschwitz with a living hope and a living faith. And they were able to endure and become integrated healthily back into this world in spite of all that they had gone through. And Peter's saying, that is what I'm trying to tell you. Guys, don't put your hope, let me rather say, don't put your ultimate hope in this world. Again, God gives us so many good things to enjoy. But don't put your ultimate hope in this world. And the things of this world, don't think that the things of this world will give you what you ultimately need to have joy and love and peace that transcends all things. So in order for us to experience these things, we need to put our hope in something beyond this world. And therefore Peter's saying, guys, focus your attention on the salvation that you've received. Focus your attention on the value of your faith. And the hope that comes from that. So guys, we're going to be spending some time. It's so appropriate that we have communion today. The Lord's table. And uh, it's just a very simple but profound uh, symbol of Christ's broken body. Just symbolized by when we break the bread. is Christ's broken body for us. Um, the shed blood of Christ. Uh, by, symbolized by the grape juice. We're going to drink um, This is the gospel that we talk about. But before we go there, just stick with me for a few more minutes. Because I don't want us to just do this thing. I want us to do this thing with faith. With an openness to what God is saying to us. You know, this thing, the the truth of the gospel, the life of Jesus Christ, is what we call the good news, what we call the gospel. This is something every single one of us needs to work out. We need to come to grips. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ in this world? For some of you, you've come to the reality, and maybe it's not a welcome reality, but you've realized 
that the things you value in this world have become distractions from the things that are of ultimate value. And as you take communion this morning, you as a believer are gonna come back with a repentant heart saying, Jesus, I need to refocus my attention on the things that truly are of value. And I'm gonna trust you for joy. I'm gonna trust you for love and faith and hope. Maybe you've realized this morning, and again, maybe it's not a welcome thought, but it's kind of what God's revealing to you. You've realized that in many ways you're a cultural Christian. It's it's your mom's faith, it's your dad's faith, it's your grand's faith, it's your wife's faith, it's your husband's faith. In some cases, it's your kid's faith, but it's not your faith. You've done the right things. You try to do the right things. You maybe even do a lot of churchy Christian things. But when we talk about the value of salvation and the value of faith, if you're really honest with yourself, there's nothing there. And guys, here's an opportunity for you to respond because God is reaching out today to every single one of you with this free gift. There's nothing you need to do. If you're in that category, if you've realized all you've done is outwardly being a Christian, but inwardly nothing, Stephen, what do I need to do? Nothing, just receive the gifts of salvation this morning. And maybe you come forward, maybe you've even taken communion before, but this morning you're gonna come forward saying, Jesus, this is real. And, and Jesus is gonna be doing something in your heart. Maybe some of you have walked here this morning or come here this morning and you've had no desire. You wouldn't even be a cultural Christian. No, it's like, I'm not religious in any way. But God's done something in your heart this morning. You've realized that this world doesn't give you everything that you want and need. And something about who Christ is and his life, death and resurrection and the offer of resurrection and the offer of inheritance it's just making sense to you right now. And in many ways, maybe you're feeling that, that God is right there. You can't explain it, but He's right there with you. So let's pray. Let's pray. And following the prayer, just come up, take some bread, take some grape juice, go back to your seats in your own time. Again, don't just do this out of routine. Just respond to what God is doing to you and come to Him. Let's pray. Father, incredibly challenging but encouraging message from your word this morning. God, we we just repent and confess that so often our attention is on the things of this world. Some of the good things of this world and sometimes some of the bad things of this world, the, the suffering we're going through. And God, we're encouraged this morning when you hold out hope You hold out love. You hold out joy. And even though we mourn, and even though we suffer, and even though we question, and even though we're in financially difficult times, you offer us something that is bigger than that, that is greater than that. So God, in faith, we come to you to trust you for what you have done and are doing in us. Thank you, Jesus, that as we come to the table, we come to you with the understanding that while people in this world may suffer with such immeasurable difficulty, maybe some of us are having such a difficult time of life right now, we don't come to the God that is impartial to suffering, that is up there somewhere in heaven, but that the cross is evidence that we pray to a God who has also suffered 
You have suffered for every single sin that humanity would commit. Jesus, you paid for that. You paid for the sins of this world. You paid for my sin. And therefore, Jesus, we pray to a God who has walked through that suffering to life and now walks with us through suffering to life. We thank you, God, that the cross is evidence that we serve and worship a God who cares about our sufferings and who is with us. So Jesus, as we do this, Holy Spirit, would you produce in us this joy, produce in us this faith, produce in us this hope and this love of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Guys, in your own time, come and take the table. We'll have some music playing gently. Spend some time with the Lord and we'll wrap up in about five minutes.